quick uh, quick fact check, by the way. So it was geography, not geology. I messed that up. But Jordan did go back and get a degree. I mean, sure, sure he did. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> the most unnecessary doubt of all time. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What's going on? How's your week? My heater broke, and I'm just going to have to brave it in the 39-degree weather today. I feel like you have heater drama every week. Couple Was it last week? All, or? all the time. <laughs> man what's happening okay. uh you know there were 100 percent less attacks on the capital this week so that's positive <laughs> yeah what's in your brain any uh, uh any updates or anything you want to hop into the fishbowl i want to start by talking bitcoin um okay so there's 18.5 million tokens right according to an article in the time the new york times this week um it's estimated that 20% of that supply has been lost, uh, basically due to lost passwords, right? So they're saying $140 billion of current valuation is gone. Give me some thoughts on this, Dougals. I have two trains of thought. I think one is I can see where uh, this supports the Bitcoin hypothesis. And in another, it makes me say like, this is why we have banks. Right, I, I can go down both of those routes. With the first being, um, you, you mentioned the amount of Bitcoin. Part of the whole Bitcoin thing is that there's limited supply, right? Will never be created more. So yeah. if it's lost, it's lost, right? And the fact that it's um, decentralized, like unregulated, not maintained by anybody, is like part of the, that's the whole thing, right? And the fact that no one can get into it, it's not like you can call up, you know, Fannie Mae and be like, can you, can you get me some of that Bitcoin? I don't know why Fannie Mae. I'm not sure why that came, but, but you, <laughs> What's you can't. Bank of America? <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you can't call anybody and uh, and get it. I get that. Like you're exactly right. That is the whole thing: the decentralized, non-managed, no central government. The best hypothesis I've heard. Let me go on the record and say I don't think Bitcoin is an investment in any way, shape, or form. I think it's a speculation, and I, I'm fine if you want to do that speculation. You can convince me that it it might work out, but um, it's so interesting that. You have, if if twenty percent of the plot supply era- evaporates over basically a decade, I mean, I think Bitcoin came out in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or something like that, formally. Um, that it that means that the demand has certainly grown and the supply is certainly shrinking, right? And it's easy to make the argument that the demand will continue to grow because in places like China, where you don't necessarily want the government to have hands in your finances and they could, if they wanted to, or speaking of the real Jack Ma, we, we need to follow up from last episode on that, uh, or Venezuela or wherever else. So I, the, one of the crazy things about that article is they were saying there's intermediaries that are trying to like act as a bank now to stop people from losing their passwords. But that's hilarious because that kind of moves away from the central thesis. The whole point. Yeah. So then on top of this, if we move quickly through this, because this is not a Bitcoin podcast, like then Jack Dorsey, when he talks about suspending uh, Trump's account uh, in his fifth tweet in that tweet storm goes to a decentralized social media structure 
uh, built on the back of uh, blockchain, which I just think is is super interesting. And, and we probably, I don't know how much of a debate we can do today, but the fact that he is trying to use that as a way to say, I want to move away from human-based censorship to a decentralized system. I just thought was a really interesting thing. I couldn't tell if he was plugging that technology. He's obviously a huge Bitcoin guy. He's a huge decentralized guy. Or if he was skirting blame with the decision that Twitter made. But I just thought, wow, that's an interesting tie-in that I didn't see coming. Have you seen his beard? Oh, have I ever? I'm not going to say it causes some credibility loss, but... He doesn't care. Diggles, he doesn't care what you think about his beard, just so you know. Oh, I mean, obviously. Obviously. He's a, I think he's a fascinating character. I'm I mean, my favorite just Jack Dorsey fact is uh, he hasn't used a computer in like 10 years or something. He does. He managed, He's the CEO of two highly successful companies on just an iPhone. Yeah, I was going to say, when you say he hasn't used a computer, you mean like he uses a computer, but it's very small. <laughs> Still, like he, he's doing everything like via tweet, basically. I mean, he's shooting some emails and some Slack back and forth, and that's it. Um, now, maybe he just has minions to do it, but uh, he's also doing yoga in Myanmar like a month a year, and he was moving to Africa until they were trying to kick him out of the CEO border. That was the rumor. What else is in the fishbowl? I want to talk about Howard Marks. For those who don't know, Howard Marks brilliant i call him a value investor founder of oak tree capital um great guy he had an 18 page article which um i thought was a little long-winded how about you Douglas? Uh, i think it was about it's about 2x what it needed to be most likely to get the point across it could have been a tweet to be honest the the craziest thing is i kept trying to find the 1.7x on my reading and it just didn't work it was like <laughs> So what would you would you glean from this uh, this wondrous piece, this memo? He's talking about what everyone else is talking about right now. Uh, value investing is underperformance. If you just look at simple, like factor-based definitions of value investing. So he starts by defining it in a different way, a more broad way, saying it's, it's really not about something that's cheap. It's a, about something that's discounted from its intrinsic value, which I completely agree with. But there's a sentence that just threw me for a loop. And... Howard Marks is incredibly smart. So he worded it in a way where it's never going to be like a gotcha sentence. But he said, um, my background had me biased toward mean reversion. What he's talking about there is basically buying things that are undervalued and waiting for them to revert to the mean to make your money, the traditional value investing style. And he says, and thus caused me to not fully grasp the potential of fade defying business models. Yeah. So I think this, that line, I think has brilliance in it but not for the reason he used it. I, the, the, the brilliance that I see is in thinking about this from a business context, I think it's fascinating to think that there are certain business models that, you, that can get a flywheel going. We've talked about the concept of a flywheel going and that flywheel can go like beyond what, what one might imagine, right? Amazon, I think is a, which we talked about last pod, I think is a fantastic example, right? If you go back the you know, 22, 23 years, it's when Amazon went public, I mean, it was crazy. Amazon started going crazy during the yep. dot-com bubble and got to a point where you could not justify its valuation based on anything that was rational happening in the future. And Amazon crushed all that rationality. After It dropped 90% at one point, but then came back to that level, which is different than something like a Cisco, for example, at the time, which hit 
like a crazy valuation, et cetera, and still has not gotten back to that point today. Yep. But because Amazon had this flywheel that um, of innovation, really, that that Bezos continued to turn with he and his, his team, right? That I think creates something great. And so there are these businesses that can do that. At the same so, time, oh, go, go ahead. Go, sorry. go, go. At the same time, I think for the average investor, believing that will make you throw more of your grandma's money in Tesla, which is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, back, I'm sure the debate in the early 2000s about Amazon's valuation was like, hey, listen, that valuation only makes sense if Amazon is soon bigger than Walmart and then everybody laughed, right? Well, what Amazon did is became bigger and better than Walmart. Like that that's a one in a million yep. thing is my point. And so uh, as a general strategy for investing, I do think it's incredibly scary. And it's interesting to hear someone who I respect so much uh, kind of throw that idea out there. But listen, this is what happens when a certain investing style underperforms for a decade. Like, I mean, everyone that's been hardcore value their entire career is going, oh, gosh, I need to find some way to at least justify this to my investors because they're pissed. They're watching all their friends make money in Tesla and Amazon and whatever else. And my strategies aren't performing. So some of that, I feel like, is self-serving, potentially. I'm not talking about Howard specifically in this case, but a lot of people when their strategy isn't performing as they would wish, they're looking for ways to explain that. I, that takes me back to uh, a conversation that we had about uh, my boy, our shills um, that you brought up. <laughs> I don't know. Sometime in the conversation we we're having recently, Robert and, Schiller folks, yeah. Robert Schiller, yeah. <laughs> Robert Schiller, Yale professor um, came up with something called Cape uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. Exactly. And, so it takes your typical PE ratio, stock price divided by earnings, right? But then adds in this, um, the 10 year rolling, right? Aspect of it. So you look at 10 year rolling PE ratio and look at uh, how that does or does not correlate to the market, right? And you were saying that he's been, he's been riding that wave for 40 years, 40 plus years at this point yep. on Cape. And then recently came out and said, okay, Cape said that the market has been overvalued for five years. Market's gone up during that period. So let's adjust and throw some interest rate into it as well. And now say when interest rates are low, that justifies how Cape can be showing something that the market doesn't reflect. Yeah, you're exactly, this is a brilliant point because uh, for 40 years, he's said, ah, it's good enough. You know, there's been all sorts of criticism because really for the last decade or so, um, even more, we've been saying US stocks are essentially overvalued and they keep going up. And so I, I like what he did with his revision to the model, but it's interesting, right? He almost had to do something. And I'm not, this is not throwing Robert Schiller, your boy, under the bus. It makes sense, but it's just kind of how new human nature works, too. If his model was uh, still had the same predictive power, he wouldn't have done an update to it in 2021, right? It, he would just would have rolled with what was working. I think it's, it's interesting when you, uh, when you look at what the human behavior signs of euphoria or bubble are. So there's, there's consensus, right? And people, yeah. like people that for decades have believed something are now questioning, whether the questioning is valid or not, but questioning. I have a bubble, uh, it's something I've been playing with. I don't even, I, maybe I call it a froth indicator. So what I've been playing with is this, you know how uh, the, the core basis of my model, like not the philosophy behind it, but the, uh, like the only thing I look at are returns. And then how those returns of a given stock look compared to the returns of a um, of the market and that ratio, yes. right? So returns relative to the market. And with any given stock, 
you can look at its returns over the last five years and how that yeah. fares to the market. If you take the median of every stock that's in the market yeah. and say, what is the median relative rate of return so to the, the market? The central point of uh, stock performance. Exactly. Yeah. Is what I found is that once that gets to somewhere that's like below the 60% mark, it like starts to indicate something. And it doesn't mean that, that something won't pop before that occurs, but it's really interesting. I, I love this and I didn't mean to interrupt. So, uh, but okay, there's a lot of interesting going on here. One thing that's important to notice because I was in a debate this week about um, valuations relative, like valuations relative to the market or valuations. Like I, I'm going to argue over the next several weeks that uh, value stocks are the appropriate strategy going forward in 2021 and beyond. But, um, the questions that came as I debated that um, this week was, well, yeah, that's like the valuation spread between growth and value right now is um, very, very high at one of its greatest points ever. But if growth is so much overvalued, like, does that actually mean value is cheap or undervalued? Or is it just, is that just another metric saying growth is crazy? What does that really tell you? So at the start of this year, the, what this, uh, the Dougal's indicator, what it's showing us is that we're at like a little under 0.7, so 0.68, which is closer to where things sat uh, at like the start of 99. Now, whether yeah. that does not mean that we're in 99, everything's different, right? The macro yeah. environment's different. We're yeah, not yeah. in the same bubble, but it's just, it is interesting because it shows that there's there's a concentrated piece of like value of bubble, right? That's happening in the market and it's leaving a lot of the market behind. Like we are in territory where it starts to become interesting to look elsewhere. Yeah, let's let's talk about that next week because I want to better digest exactly what that's saying, and maybe we should build some visuals around it. Because really, you're talking about the, if the median stock is over or undervalued relative to the average performance. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, and, and so that is a it's an interesting thing to think through. Um, you sent me an analysis this week breaking down. Uh, basically top performing stocks relative to the market of all time. I thought there were some good names on that list. You want to hit some? Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Let me, uh, let me pull it up. Are these three of the top five deagles? Uh, off the top of my head, I had Monsters Beverage, um, Amazon, and Altria Group. That's what you believe? M we're top three? You... Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm pretty sure I nailed it. No, you, I'm pretty sure you didn't. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> well, well bring some facts to the conversation <laughs> yeah so uh so what i looked at is if you look in the history of all stocks right that have ever existed and look at their performance relative to the market what comes out on top and this includes stocks that no longer trade right so so something could have performed incredibly well crushed the market and then got acquired right for yeah. example and it would still be on the list uh, so number one's amazon number two is Altria group and number three is home depot no, but uh, Monster Beverage is in there somewhere. Well, I mean, every stock is in here somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Mo so Monster is, uh, it's a top three over the last 20 years, but it's not a top three all time. Yeah, last 20 years is something like Netflix, Monster. Um, but what, what I actually, what I think is most interesting here is Altria Group. And the reason why is because if you go back to uh, 2003, which is the last time I produced this list, Nice. So 2003, Altria Group was number one by with like by a long shot. Like no stock could even come close yep. to how how badly it's beaten the market. 
And Atria Group has effectively gotten beaten over the last 20 years, like for the most part. It has yeah. it's, it's had ups and downs, but it's gotten beaten relative to some things like Amazon. And it's still number two. Like I, I, that just shows you how dominant it was creating a highly addictive product, acquiring other companies that are also highly addictive, like mac and cheese, which I might gobble later because now I'm just getting hungry. And it's crazy, right? It just shows you its dominance over decades and decades. No, you know what's also brilliant about that is I've held Altria Group uh, many times within the past 15 years, uh, two or three. And so let me not say many, um, because it's been a value stock. Like it's been dirt cheap. And the rest of the names on that list, um, actually Home Depot early in the pandemic had a time where it looked like it was relatively cheap. Um, so that's interesting. But a lot of the names on that list, you think of as high flyers, um, fate defying business models potentially, right? But no, you can get some of the best performance stocks of all time at crazy deals. And I have, and, but then yeah, Altria the last like, 20 years is such an interesting story because the stock still performs despite all the headwinds that come with business regulation and taxes and everything else. Um, it's got a hot dividend too. Yeah, it does. Is it still like 6% or something? I think it's something like that. By the way, Monster is number 174 on the list at about 12.88, the market. So <laughs> number three, number 174. It's kind of, I, I feel like this is the- uh, probation. Exactly. It reflects how you look at your own portfolio too. And you're like, oh yeah, my portfolio is crushing it. It's hot. Value is it. And I'm like, no, you're, you're like, I think you're, you I'm hit some, I'm you hit some rows. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you hit some rows when you were looking at how you, how you fare relative to the average investor. So, oh man. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I know you're going to grab a few things out of fishbowl. Um, we just need to follow up. This is all speculation, but sometimes speculation is fun. Last week, we did like uh, five, 10 minutes on Jack Ma, right? And Ant Group and everything else. And uh, how I remember it, and I'm not so good with uh, my memory, but I remember me saying China's going to crush him and take over his businesses. And then this week, what happened, Dougals? Nationalization. Yeah. Isn't that crazy, though? So what, is it, what does this mean? Is he Is he locked up? Is he just... Um, told to go away somewhere. What are they like? Are they gonna pay him out what his businesses are truly worth? Or are they gonna discount it? Or do we know none of the answers to these questions? We know nothing. The only thing that we know, or that it, it seems like is gonna happen, are people that are are in the know seemingly are saying that the Chinese government is gonna take over Alibaba. Um, so that's the whole nationalization thing. It is. It continues to be crazy. The more that this news come, this type of news comes out. And no one says it like no one that is Jack Ma or no one that is pretending to be Jack Ma or no one that knows Jack Ma mentions anything about Jack Ma. Like it, it, that is insane, isn't it? I mean, Where, like, can you imagine? Yeah. Where's Jack Ma's mom or like girlfriend or hey, something? Ma. I mean, is there anybody that can speak for Mr. Ma? Like it's crazy. Can, can Twitter like send him a burner phone and then he can shoot some, is, is he in touch with snowden is he on signal is there some way that jack ma can reach out to this specific podcast um, jack ma if you're out there please text me a poop emoji just to let me know <laughs> that you're okay somebody should be talking about this it's just like oh that's china or so i don't know what's going on but it it's i'm so glad you brought that up last week because uh it'll be fun to follow in the future yeah, the, the last straw actually came for me this week. And it wasn't, you would think that the last straw was nationalization of 
of his companies and him not mentioning anything, right? Which is crazy. That's what that's what got me to the last straw. Yeah. But what was actually the last straw for me was his local bar, which he frequented, also has not seen him since October. I still haven't gotten the poop emoji. Refresh. <laughs> I, I got one last rant, but we'll save it for the end. So let's switch gears. Is it going to be contentious? I mean, yeah, I think it will be. But but we'll probably both be contentious on my side. It'll just be contentious to uh, my my new arch nemesis, her Twitter handle is RTD Boss Lady. All right. So for those who don't know, <laughs> I'm based in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Uh, 17 years ago, this community paid uh, a ridiculous sum of money uh, on a yearly basis to get a train to connect Boulder to Denver, right? 17 years, no progress whatsoever. And our regional t- transit district uh, just got a new president who said she thinks it's never going to be viable or potentially never viable for the space. Well, so let's not talk about this specific issue. Let's just talk about government oversight in general. If someone gives you money for 17 years and you don't deliver what you promised to deliver, how about a refund, man? Like, what's going on here? How can you just take someone's... Uh, hey, Dougals, I'm going to uh, start giving you money for a beautiful piece of art that you're going to deliver in the next decade, right? And then three decades go by, you don't give me anything? Hook me up. The first thought that actually came to mind, and we'll actually get back to government, is uh, you've been giving money to value stocks for 17 years, and they haven't delivered what you wanted. So, oh, mean. 15% a year, homie. Don't even don't even act like I'm not printing money over here. I'm looking at row 174. I don't see your name on there. <laughs> no, I I think I do think that that's a. I don't know. Government's messed up. I think in these kinds of ways. Educate me a little bit here, because I can see giving money in two ways. One way would be giving money by your like buying municipal bonds, and maybe there's a coupon right, at which you're yeah. being paid. And so therefore you're lending money to the government. If the government never created that thing but still pays you the coupon, then as an investor, yeah, sure, right? The other way, if the government, if you're paying the government via taxes specifically for something like that and they're not delivering, then sure. But is there is there money that has been set aside by the citizenry, including you, the angry citizenry, including yeah. you, that's not used for it? Or is it uh, like an implicit giving of money that you're complaining yeah, about? Yeah, so I mean, this, this isn't like I... I financed debt and knew there were some risk, you know, like this is not really an investing thing. This is a straight up, uh, fairly traditional. We're taking a percent of tax revenues, um, to build, to provide enhanced services. And I think I was pitched back in the early two thousands was something along the lines of right now you pay 0.05%. You're going to pay uh, 0.1% or something like that. And these are all the things we're going to deliver with that additional bump, I could, you could potentially say, you know what, we were never able to deliver what we promised, but let's roll back. Let's roll back to the previous tax rate because you're not getting the benefit that you've been paying for. Um, That's not happening. And yeah, I know government is slippery here, but it just seems like there's a lack of accountability that doesn't happen nearly as often in the private sector as it does in the public sector. Yeah. I I actually, I think, I think that's right. What do you do about this? You just tweeted RTD lady, angry thoughts. I mean, yeah, right now I, I'm just ranting to you. Uh, th- that's probably all I'll do about it, to be honest. Let's just assume I'm mad as hell and uh, I want this to change. And I want my $100 million back, right? Or or my community's $100 million back. Um, what's the legal course of action to get that? There's none. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure there's none. What it makes me think about is um, this tweet 
by David Carroll, uh, who's a professor somewhere out east. Um, and it, the, I'm going I'm to read this tweet for you. It says, what if I told you that stimulus checks are actually tax refunds and tax cuts for the rich are actually government spending? Okay, I'm going to let well, that sink in for a moment. All right, I followed the first part, and then that second part tripped me up. Let's hear it again. What if I told you that stimulus checks are actually tax refunds and tax cuts for the rich are actually government spending? Okay, so the first piece, uh, loud and clear, I think that's probably the appropriate way to think about it, right? I mean, would you agree with that? So basically, if I get a stimulus check, um, and it, the stimulus checks are tax-free, I believe, which is a benefit. Um, so I follow that. Tax cuts for the rich um, being government spending. So basically what, what Prof Carroll here is talking about, I believe, right, is that he's saying that there, there are groups of individuals uh, in the country that are saying that they're against government spending, right? Um, yeah. Big government's not the thing I want. I don't want government spending. But then they're for yeah. tax cuts for the wealthy. And effectively, if you, are, if you don't want the government to be giving out funds that's the same as the government just not taking those funds in the first place i think that is yeah. what he's he's trying to say for that for that latter part and so you basically saying that if, you, if you're saying generally i don't want the government to have x amount of money then yeah. my my interpretation of that is i'm, I'm taking this is not what prof carroll said but what i'm i'm taking out of that is like if the government's not going to have that amount of money wouldn't you rather the government be spending money on the, on things that stimulate the economy versus not getting that money from the the uber wealthy are you mind blown so, right now a little bit but that's good right so when it comes to government spending in general it's amazing to me that it's not more of a um, consultant like approach and there's no one going have you looked at have you looked at the roi of x versus y in terms of the ability to generate future tax revenue. But yeah, you blew my mind here. You said you had you had one more item, I think, in the fishbowl, and then I got a I got a question for you. Oh, boom. All right. Here we go. Dougal's quiz for you. Um you you currently make uh let's just say it's two hundred K, right? You you make two hundred K and uh you've been at, at my company for five years. Uh, you've had some ups and downs. I mean, I'd say your hit rate's like 85%. The executives like you, um, everything else, but man, have you had some massive flops? All right. I sent you in with the CEO a couple of weeks back and he came out screaming. I think, he, I think you got kicked out of the office. I was and, loving this career you were painting for me <laughs> right up until then. I was like, can I, I want, I would love this career. So, Sorry, so like basically, yeah, nine out of 10, uh, times home run out of the park but those really critical the most important meetings and projects i've given you you've struggled with um so here's what you're gonna do um we're gonna just take that payback we're gonna 200 seems a little lofty we're gonna take it back to 100 um i'll put a couple like incentives in there that if you really crush it you can get back close to where you were um but yeah i don't i don't really see that happening and uh i'm putting you in charge of this new division where 
It's the most important division of the company. You have uh, 10 direct hires coming on and you really have to build talent and engagement uh, to take us to the next level, right? Um, sound cool? You good? You on board? No. <laughs> All right. This is what happened at the University of Michigan last week. Um, Jim Harbaugh. Give me, some Give me some detail. Jim Harbaugh was making $8 million a year. He was, the, I think, the fourth highest paid coach in America. He's been in Michigan five years. Um, and actually, uh, Jim Harbaugh's won everywhere he's been, from San Diego State to Stanford to the 49ers to Michigan. Um, I think he has three win, three 10-win seasons in the last five years. Um, but he's never beaten Ohio State. He's lost more than he should to Michigan State. Like all the key rivals, he hasn't really performed. He's uh, one in 11 against top 10 teams uh, in his five years at Michigan. So despite the fact that he's winning 70 some percent of his games, um, he's not really performing in the top, top projects and top meetings. Their solution was to cut his pay in half and tell him to go recruit the top athletes in America and go to win a national title. In your eyes, is there any way that this has a happy ending, Douglas? No. I mean, if you're someone that has his uh, history, reputation, et cetera, right? I mean, this is just a slight. Like, he's not, he's not some rookie, right, that you're basically saying, like, you need to, you need to prove yourself. Um, and if you prove yourself, then you can, you can get what you, what you want. I mean, this is – it just – it feels like I, if I were him, I could be in no other situation except feel slighted. And I'm sure my brother's calling me and going and laughing at me like Nelson and the Simpsons. Oh, so that's actually what I want to dive into. I think the psychological aspect of this is the entire story. Like, I'm sure he could pay all his bills on $8 million. I'm sure he can pay all his bills on $4 million. He's not switching houses. He's not doing anything else. He has uh, at least a decade of being paid multi-million dollars a year. If he's not, like, burning money in the fireplace every night, like, the money doesn't matter. But the ego and the psychological hit here, I think that's so great that I can't imagine it's successful. And that's why I wanted to frame it in the business context first. If he, if he'd showed up at Michigan, he might not have accepted this, but if he showed up at Michigan and he had, he'd said, they'd said, you're going to make $4 million. And if you do this awesome stuff, then we're going to pay you more. And he's like, well, um, I'm Jimmy H. I'm obviously going to do those awesome things. So oh, yeah. that sounds just like it's guaranteed to me. Versus now you're telling me I don't deserve something that you once told me that I had. Yeah. So uh, all this stuff is just, it's like the, one of the major keys, you know, there's the, what product sells more, the jeans that are a hundred bucks that are 50% off or the jeans that are 50 bucks, like the jeans that are, are so-called worth a hundred bucks that are 50% off sell because people feel like they're getting a deal. Um, in investing, it's uh, losing a dollar is said to be twice as painful as gaining a dollar, right? You open up your brokerage account, you see that you're up 1% and it's like awesome. But then you see that you're down 1% the next day and you like really feel it, you know? Um, so I, I guess the thing that's so baffling to me is that the administration at the University of Michigan, and I'm not trying to call them out. It's a great school, right? Um, it could be any school. They just completely missed the psychological component. They they should have structured the deal so there's no pay cut, but they're, they have funny money going on behind the scenes. So, But when he goes to work tomorrow or two weeks from now, 
and it's tough times and he's not super happy about his job right now and the 24 nature of being a college football coach at a major program and flying all over the country recruiting kids and whatever else when he has that moment of doubt and he goes and you know what i get paid half as much as i used to like that doubt is going to affect his performance there's no doubt about it it's kind of this is one of those situations um like in the business context right where I think someone asked asked a question of, do you want this person to be working for you or not? Because if you're going to deflate someone psychologically so much that way, then I think you've made the decision that you don't want them there. Or you're yes. maybe at least you don't care if they're not there. Yep. And I, I've seen companies uh, manage out um, performers that are above average for one reason or another and keep uh, less capable employees. And that's always baffled me in a way. But what would be more baffling than that is to go to that same above average employee and tell them that you're going to cut their pay in half, but you're super excited about the next five years together. That that makes no sense. I just thought about like so many circumstances in which like that, that broadly, like that generalization, like would not make any sense. Like, can you imagine doing that with like any relationship that you have a friendship, uh, you know? wait what's the friendship example it's like it, we see each other every tuesday night for dinner and we go catch a couple sports events together and then i don't even know how to be that insulting like <laughs> i can't oh we normally split dinner now you have to pay for me and i can only see you once a month yeah but i'm excited about the next the next this phase of our, our friendship it, it also, it makes me think, uh, like, if you had a municipality, or if you had a city that basically said, um, can you pay me twice as much, but I'm not going to actually deliver what you want, but I'm excited for you to live here for the next 15 years. Wait, wait, wait. Is this coming full circle? It's, uh, it's a baffling thing. And I really, again, I didn't see the mainstream media. I, I saw Ohio State's Twitter account, like, literally laughing at it. They, they applauded the new contract, which tells you all you need to know. But where is like the, the PTI guys being like, just the human nature aspect of this means there's no chance that this is going to work. You're ignoring psychology. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so I got a question for you. You still have, you still have some time. Yeah. A little time question for you. What are your, what are your feelings on five twenty nine? Okay. That's a little too broad. Um, college savings is important. Let's start there. Okay, so let's all agree college savings is important, right? 529 plans are one way that you can get a tax-advantaged account toward college savings. Yes. Here's the thing I did, right? And this is a – so uh, I, got a, I got a kiddo, seven years old at this point. Here's the thing I did a few years ago is I basically took a spreadsheet, which, of course, so that's where I start with everything, took a spreadsheet and laid out – like 2014, 2015, whenever I did this um, and extrapolated that out uh, 15 years to when yeah. college would start. Then I looked at the average price of college. Yep. The most expensive college, like the cheaper side of college, put those into three rows, then increased those costs by what, like the average rate of, of, um, of college increases are right now, which is over the rate of inflation, right? Yep. It's like three to 5%. It's something crazy. Yep. Looked at that final number. And I, I was just like, 
what's the what's the point? Um, that was my first thought. Then I said, okay, there is a point. College savings is important. Skippy once told me college savings are important. So there's a point. So let me figure this yeah. out. So then the next step that I took is I was like I'm looking at 529s. When well, you're telling me that I I need to put my uh, I need to put money into this account where there's a limited set of funds that I can invest in, right? Similar to like 401ks, how they do that. Yep. And you want me to get a rate of return, tax included or not, a rate of return that can equal that thing at the end. Or should I just invest this on my own for the next 15 years? Right. That that's kind of that was the question that I missing that, that missing the tax advantages. Is it is it worth the tax advantage yeah, to it, put it the is. money into the 529? So there's other options uh, here. There's a Coverdell uh, education savings account uh, that's a little more flexible in spending. Um, so I have a 529 and a Coverdale ESA. Um, the Coverdale has some advantages for sure because you can pick individual stocks if you're a superstar like Dougal's. Um, Dougal. 529 has some limits. 529's easy, set it, forget it. You pick aggressive, moderate, whatever, uh, you know, and, and you roll with it. Now, historically, and again, 99% of the people, 529 is probably the way to go. But what's so interesting about the environment we're in with valuations is a 60-40 stock stock bond portfolio. So 60% bonds, or excuse me, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, kind of a baseline metric, right? Um, historically has performed really well, less volatility, less risk uh, with comparable returns, right? But right now, U.S. stocks are so crazy valued and U.S. bonds are so crazy valued that the future expectations of a 60-40 blended portfolio, which is, uh, the reason I'm saying this is that's what a lot of your 529 investments would look like. It'd be some flavor of that. Um, the return expectations are crazy. I can get this for the next episode, but it might be like 3% a year uh, for the next decade because of where valuations sit. Something like that, I think is right. Yeah. Um, so that's not, I mean, that's not going to get you where it is. I think most importantly, the exercise you did, I can't tell you how many people come to me with this and they go that number at the end. Like, do you remember the ballpark of your numbers? I mean, are we talking? No, I, I can pull it up, but no, but it was, yeah. it was, it was ridiculous. Like $300,000 a year or like can, something we, crazy. Yep. We can tie some loose ends, but this is a case where, um, college is not a fate defined business model and you're already seeing that with the coronavirus stuff and like the reason your uh above average state schools are having kids show up in person is because they have a really hard time justifying the price tag if it's not so my approach is drastically different and i'll be curious for your thoughts um it's not about trying to find that number at the end and then finding a way to get there it's trying to figure out where you sit financially and kind of what your peers can do. Because in 11 years, when your son is ready for college, who's he going to college with? He's going to college with your uh, peer group's children, right? And in my peer group, I know very few people that are saving 5% of their annual income for um, education savings. That's what I'm doing, right? My sons are probably going to have above average amount of funds available to finance their what, what does that do it sounds like you're just gloating <laughs> no sorry i'm not trying to gloat um at all so it's coming across the wrong way but 
you you just think about supply and demand, right? Like, point are, is, are you, are you basically saying if not enough people can afford the higher price of college, then the price of college will naturally come down. Price comes down, right? So if there's an asset that I know I need in the future that I can't figure out the price of, I just want to be well prepared. I just want to have funds that I think not a, not even above average. It's unfair to say. I want to have the average amount of funds available to buy that asset where the future price tag is unknown because they're going to have to meet me where I am. Right. Yeah. That's, it's, it's an interesting look. Um, like that's a, that's believing that there's some, there's some economic equilibrium or economic efficiency that exists in the higher education market. You know how I know there will be because uh, political candidates for the last 10 years uh, have run on forgiving education debt and everything else. And you know why they have to run on that? Because it's clear that, in a lot for a lot of degrees at a lot of schools, um, the amount it costs, there's not a good return on that investment. So there's already a disconnect between price and value there, and it's gonna eventually get fixed. And it will get fixed much quicker if debt is forgiven because either we sign up with this policy that says debt will always be forgiven as it relates to education, which speaks to the disconnect between price and value, or people will say. I mean, people are already saying this generation that it's not worth taking out as much debt as they were previously. I want your thoughts on you have to buy something a decade plus out and there's no good way to estimate the price. I want your thoughts on how you approach that. The way that I approach that is um, is different than the way that you you approached it. It's like what you were saying is I, I want at least the average amount, right? That's what you're aiming for. I mean, thereabouts. I, I, I want to be in the I wanna, ballpark. I want to conquer the top, like be fully prepared for what it might cost. Yeah, I guess the thing is, I don't feel like if if I don't feel like there's a realistic way to estimate, say, the average cost, it's really it's even harder to edu- or to estimate the top cost. You know, like so you can just say 300k a year, but I think that's ridiculous. I mean, and I think saving towards that end would make sacrifices with home buying and retirement savings and all these other things that would be short-sighted. Say more about the home buying part of it. I'll use rough numbers here. Um, you can choose a different asset if you want. Home buying was just what you said. so it doesn't. No, I, I just think the rest of your family's costs, right? If I think college is going to cost $1.2 million, I'd have to run the math, but gosh, I might be saving like 15% of my salary for future college for one kid. Well, I have two kids. So I'm supposed to take 30% of my salary and put away for college. That is what I spend on my mortgage. Uh, it's probably more than that. And then I'm supposed to take another 15% and save it for retirement. Like pretty soon I'm living on pennies. Or you find other ways to pay for it. Such as steroids. Say, this has to <laughs> non sequitur. Um, I mean, like uh, you, you could say, okay, well, scholarships have to be like a thing that has to exist here. Okay, but but the reason scholarships are so prevalent is because price is already disconnected from value. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, if you're if you're charging someone for something, right? You want to look at what are all of the sources of funds that that individual might be able to have in order to price your item, right? It's the way that. If I think about uh, doing enterprise deals, for example, in business, right? And you're you're selling you're selling your product to the enterprise, you you might be like, look, I think they can get 
they're going to be able to take some of this from like IT's budget, a little bit of this from marketing's budget, a little bit from this. So we can probably charge X, right? And so in thinking about the price here, I think that you that that they have to say, what is someone going to be able to get from the government, right? Pell grants. What are you going to be able to get from whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. scholarships? You you lost me at your business analogy and comparing that to private education. I mean, like a business is making an investment, whether they grab money from multiple budgets or not, because they think there's a solid ROI on that investment. I'm not studying like uh, English literature at some hoity-toity Northeast school where I'll never use that degree and I just hope to land on Wall Street. Like it's it's two different things. We need to have this debate again, I think. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna come with the theory. You're so gonna you come with ready. some some facts and I'm not gonna do any research and it's gonna be really interesting. <laughs>